Good morning. We want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, from all of our campuses, those that might be joining us from our West Campus, those of you here at East, and those of you who are joining us online. Something really, really cool happened just this past Wednesday night when Garrison Davis in Moulton, Alabama, the only NBYG online member, got to lead our students in the Scripture before our worship. And so Garrison, I know he and his family are watching. Garrison, uh, we look forward to seeing you at the fall retreat. It's awesome to have a a growing uh, online uh, community. Well, because you are seeing me, not probably the David that you wanted or hoped to have seen today, um, but David is still in the hospital, but I'm going to read an update that was sent by Julie and at their request, I want to read this, uh, this update. It says this, It appears that David's cancer treatments are producing amazing results. Several tumors have shrunk in size. Others have disappeared altogether, and we thank God for this. Unfortunately, however, David, several weeks ago, David began to develop some negative side effects from these same treatments. He also contracted a serious case of COVID, and by last Sunday, David's condition was bad enough that his family doctor sent him to the Stonecrest ER, which within a few hours sent him by ambulance to Vanderbilt's ER, where David was admitted with symptoms of kidney failure, high fever, dangerously low blood pressure, dehydration, and a severe cough. For the first few days while at Vanderbilt, David's prognosis was uncertain, and he suffered a lot. But by Thursday, David's health began to turn around, and the last couple of days have been good ones, with David's kidney functions restored and his other symptoms under control. David is still at Vanderbilt, but hopes to come home today or tomorrow. He wants you to know that we are so grateful for North Boulevard. We love you and miss you enormously. David intends to be back in the pulpit live and in person either next Sunday or the following. Thank you for your love and support. And just before I walked up here, I got another text from Julie that said David is getting to come home this afternoon after lunch. So we praise God for that. It's amazing. And so I know that we all look forward to seeing David next week, Lord willing. Last week, you got David Hunziker, who did an incredible job. So David next week, David last week, and this week, you get David. The lesson, the message here is, if your name is David, why don't you go ahead and get a sermon uh, prepared and ready? Because you never know when we're going to need it. Julie also said in one of our updates to our our staff meeting that she said he was showing his uh, great sense of humor this morning. And I was like, wow, he... He really is improving. It's, it's getting even better. Um, David, we know that you are uh, likely watching, and we are so, so excited to, to, uh, to see you back with us, and we continue to pray fervently for you. In fact, would you join me, church, and let's do that right now. God, we thank you for the way that you have worked in the lives of the young family. We pray for David, for Julie, for the doctors and technicians that are ministering to them. And God, we pray for a quick and speedy return and a quick and speedy recovery. God, we ask for full healing. And God, we thank you for the way that uh, they have glorified you throughout this uh, intense battle. God, we thank you for your spirit, and we ask that your spirit be present in this room and certainly in the words that will be shared. May they be your words and not mine. It's through the name of Jesus that we pray and we all say together, amen. I do want to take a moment just to welcome some very special guests. I know we can't greet all of our visitors, but uh, my dear friends, Ricardo and Patty Gonzalez from Ensenada from the City of Children are here uh, to celebrate uh, a wedding shower for their son and his fiancee, Esteban and Caroline, and Caroline's family. Um, And our church has had a long history with the City of Children, and it's very rare that we get to worship together um, on, on this side of the border, and we're so, so thankful to have you all with us. It's an honor to have you here. Well, um... There you go. I coached, I coached one game of baseball, and that was uh, the Boys and Girls Club. My brother played for a team when he was seven years old. I'm seven years older, so I was 14. And the game, 
Uh, his coach had missed three uh, previous games because of, uh, unfortunately, an addiction that he was battling and missed three games. And they finally said, you can no longer coach. My brother said, my brother will coach. They came over and said, are you Paul's brother? I said, yes. They said, we need you to coach. Have you ever coached baseball? I said, well, no, but I've, I've played a little bit, but I've never coached. They said, we need you to coach. So I got my friend Jimmy, who was there with me to watch my brother play. We went over and met my brother's team. And true story, they were all standing there where they had proceeded to divide all of the catcher's gear up among all the other players on the team. And I said, guys, you can't do this. Like, who's catcher? Me. Then you get to wear all that. And they said, that's no fair. Why does he get to wear all of it? And one player said, I said, why why are you all dividing it up? And they said, because William plays second base and he keeps getting slid into in the shins. So we gave him those, those things. And then, and then, you know, Billy out in center field, he keeps getting popped in the head with fly balls. So we gave him that mask. And the guy playing shortstop, he just keeps getting grounders to the chest. So we gave him that thing. I said, no, that's not the way it works, guys. Like he gets all, the catcher gets all of the gear. And one kid gave the best response I've ever heard. He said, why? Because when we played, the ball never even makes it to that guy. (laughs) Like we throw the ball and it goes that way. It never comes towards him. Now keep in mind that I was the player that in the same league, not long before that, true story, was scared to death of a pitcher named Reginald Constant. Reginald was, even as a kid, was throwing, you know, 75, 80 mile an hour fastballs. It was, and, and people were getting hit, and I was very scared. I walked up to the plate to look at my, for my manager's signs. My manager looked, and he was giving me this sign like this. I didn't know that sign. The sign was just like this. And I thought, what, what's he doing? I, I got up to the plate. I'm a lefty, so I got up to the plate. I looked back over, and he's standing there like this. I was so scared, true story. I'd walked up to the plate without a bat. (laughs) Now, I want you to remember the laughter that you just gave at my expense because that may come back to haunt all of us here in just a bit. I probably wasn't qualified to coach that team, but I knew early on that these guys had had got it wrong. This message is a part of the series. It's kind of a second prequel. David Hunziker did an incredible job looking at the six strategies of the enemy. And so this week we have to look at six things we need to take up to be able to defend ourselves and to attack the schemes of the enemy. It's not technically a part of the series, but um, it's kind of like a prequel leading in to give us vocabulary so that we're ready when we launch into this series. Legion, living in a world of angels and demons and all things spiritual which is going to be pretty, a pretty heavy series. But to make sure that you know that it, this is going to be easy to understand, Brooks, come on up here. I've asked uh, Brooks Bolden to come and help us out to prove to you that this, this, this topic is something so easy that really even a child can understand it. Now, I don't know that I would exactly classify Brooks as a child, um, but I want you to help us out. Now, you do not know what you're about to do, right? I've given you uh, instructions that I'm going to ask you four questions, but I've not told you. This is not rehearsed. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you four words, and you're going to tell me, the person that has these four things, what is that person likely going to do, okay? So the first one, the person has a ball, they have a glove, they have a bat, and they have cleats. What are they going to do? Go play baseball. They're going to play baseball. You're one for one. Good job. Here comes the second one. See if you can do this one. They have a pole or a rod. They've got bait. They've got a net, and they're wearing waders. What are they going to do? Fish. They're going to fish. Good. You're two for two. It's incredible. Very nice. In front of a lot of people, you're doing really good. Let's try the third one. This person's got a compass. They've got boots. They've got a backpack, and they have a tent. What are they about to do? They're going to go camping. They're going to go camping. You are three for three, and now comes the big one, okay? Here we go. You see someone who has a helmet, a breastplate, a shield, and a sword. What are they about to do? Fight the devil. Okay. Wow, that escalated quickly. That escalated fast. Nice. Um, Thank you very much. Good job. They're about to fight. 
they're about to go to battle. Notice he did not say they're about to go to church and sit and listen to a sermon. Notice he did not say they're about to go to Bible class or they're about to go to their life group or their small group. All those things are great. We're glad you're here. We're glad you'll be at small group meetings scattered all over the county tonight. But when you see these things, even, a, even a, an elementary school student, even a, a child knows this implies that person is in fact going to battle. Just make sure we understand that. When I was a, a young kid, about Brooks's age, in my church in Cleveland, Tennessee, at the Central Church in Cleveland, there was a, a class I've never forgotten where one of the teachers said, I'm going to just explain to you the definitions of words that maybe you hear in songs that you don't understand. Words like raise your Ebenezer or words like night with Eben Pinion. And one of them came from this song, Soldiers of Christ Arise, from verse 3. Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued, but take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. There's that word, a word that I did not know at that age, Brooks, what that word meant. I knew I'd heard it from this song, and it's not a word that we really use a whole lot. Now, I apologize to our students, many of them who are over here. We just did about an 11-week series on this particular topic, on this word, panoply. You're going to get a little bit of a recap, but I think it's probably worth hearing again. And also, cut me some slack, because I was just asked to preach on Wednesday, all right? So, um, we're going to go through this. Here's this word, and what this word means, at least as we use it, it means uh, a complete or impressive collection of things. So, for example, I collect old metal lunchboxes because I'm cool that way, and I've got a, a panoply of lunchboxes. It's an impressive collection of things. I've got about 150 of them. Or the word can also mean a splendid uh, display. We often hear this in connection with astronomy. So somebody talks about a panoply of stars or a panoply of galaxies. But then the historic meaning of the word is really a, a complete set of arms or a suit of armor, a, a panoply. We get this word because of the Greek soldier known as a hoplite would carry a hoplon or a shield. And so then you can see that the, the, the root of the word panoply is hidden in there. They've got a whole regiment of soldiers that are with them. They're all dressed alike. We know where these people are going. It's very clear they are either about to defend or they are about to attack. They're not just standing there looking pretty. We know that something is about to go down. We see this in art, all over classic art and classic sculptures. You see this armor. So this word panoply means uh, pan, so like all, okay? Uh, and hoplon, we have armor. So pan hoplon, a panoply is really the, the full set of the armor of God. So that's where we get this word. And there is what the armor is. You'll see some of it displayed up here on the stage as well. Paul's going to write about this in his closing scene of his letter to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians. He's going to write. This is the way he chooses to close it all out. So you know that he really, really is putting a, a lot of importance to this ending scene. Think of a movie that you love with a great ending scene. This is the way he's going to end. But before we read the passage, which you can go ahead and already skim, let's think about when he's writing it and where he's writing it. He's in prison, probably uh, under house arrest, and he's got a guard who is standing guard to get with him. And in the midst of being a prisoner, he is finding a way to use his circumstance to minister to the person who's guarding him. Imagine, this guy here is probably a second-rate guard, meaning that he's not even a full Roman soldier. He's probably a guard who was captured from some other army and has just been brought to do this job until he can prove his worth to, to the Roman military. And so he's going to have shoes and maybe a breastplate and maybe a belt, but he doesn't have the full armor. He feels second-rate. Paul's not just writing so that this guy will understand, because this is a guy that really wants his full armor. 
He wants all the benefits and all the privileges. And Paul's finding a way to reach him. But then you think about Paul is writing also to, to Gentile Christians who are being made to feel second rate by Jewish Christians. And he's letting them know, hey, I want you, I'm going to tell you how to, to put on the full armor so that you can, can have all the privileges of what it means to be in Christ. But he's also writing to the ninth grade girl in 2022 who's been made to feel second rate by her friends that you're not enough and you're, you don't measure up and we don't need you. And Paul is saying, hey, you are an important part of this, of this battle. And so I want you to know how to get dressed and dress uh, appropriately for this battle. So he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, which Hunzi did a great job of, of laying out last week. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Brooks, when I was your age, this is not language that I really understood. I didn't understand what this all meant. And I'm so thankful that at an early age, you and others, your age and teens and others of us are going to get this vocabulary as David presents this series of what does this mean? Because everybody here showed up in some sort of battle or conflict. I mean, almost everybody. I mean, we don't have time to go around the room, but our hearts would break if we, some of them are battles with health or battles with a spouse or battles with a child or battles with a parent or a coworker or just some conflict or addiction. You've got something going on that you're just glad to be sitting here in church for 30 minutes so you don't have to worry about whatever it is. That's, you just need a moment of rest. You need to remember there's always something that you cannot see controlling what you can. So you can see this big problem. Now, I'm going to show you a really silly picture to illustrate this, but it's the best way I can to kind of disarm and also explain this, this, this spiritual warfare idea in a very, very simple way. So Blake and I were at a conference uh, in January. We went to the Center for the Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, and there's a Jim Henson exhibit, and I saw this picture, which is one of my favorite pictures of all time. I grew up on Sesame Street with the Muppets, and I always was fascinated. The only paddling I got in elementary school was because I was reading a National Geographic World magazine about the Muppets, and I didn't hear the librarian say it was time to put the magazine down. And I got a paddling because of the Muppets. How does that happen? But I love this picture because we all focus on what's going on on the screen, the thing that we can see, not knowing that those things aren't even real. It's something that's controlling it that is down below the surface that we never got to see as a kid until we read World Magazine, which is why I was so fascinated. Anyway, I digress. I'm trying to defend myself. I saw this picture and I thought, okay, the puppets we know aren't real, but those that are controlling them are. That thing that you walked in that's, carrying all, that's causing you all this pain, it is really just a puppet that is being used by an enemy, the spiritual forces of this dark world, to weaken you and to take you down. I hope that makes sense. So Paul then says, therefore... You need to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And then you begin to know the rest of the armor of God. Most of you say, I've got verses 14 through 17. I got them memorized. I went to VBS. We did all of it. We made the crafts. We got the coloring sheets. We saw the skits. We know it. But this is something that even beyond childhood you need to know. I'm not going to take time to read this. You've already skimmed it. You already know it. We're going to look at it one at a time. But first, I want to go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 59, the prophet describes the world that he saw in, in that time. And I want you to see whether you look at the lifelines or the headlines or turn on the radio or the news, you're going to see this world right here. So justice is driven back. 
and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth is stumbling in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Church, this sounds just like today. Sounds like it could have been a paragraph right out of today's newspaper. That's it. It's going on in your own homes. It's going on perhaps in your own marriages or with your children, even in our churches. And so I just need you to know that this is to be continued. We're going to come back to the promise of Isaiah 59 just a little bit later. So we're going to start walking through how to get dressed. We start off by taking up the belt of truth that is buckled around your waist, the belt of truth. Paul starts with this one because most everybody would have a a belt. And the belt we think of is is this. Or if you were really cool back in the 90s, then you had a belt like this, right? This was the really cool belt. Some belts we see, and we don't even need to know the person who's wearing them. We know who's wearing them, and we know what this person is about to do. Like, we get excited just seeing this belt. Or some of us know what this belt is. If you're really nerdy among us, you know whose belt this is. And you know that bad things are about to happen because who wears that belt is up to no good. The belt sometimes lets us know we can identify a person by their belt. So when you saw a Roman soldier wearing one of these belts, they're very ornate. They'd have medallions on them. But these weren't just for decoration. Sometimes they indicated where you were from. Sometimes they indicated rank. Sometimes they were just decorative. But they would wear this belt around their waist and they would keep their sword, their dagger, maybe their shield. The the breastplate would connect to the belt to hold it all together. But the belt is the piece that is kind of the, the linchpin, which is why Paul, I think, picks the belt and he calls it the belt of truth. Matching the, the item with the word becomes very crucial. Now, at the risk of being, you know, um, I, I know this may sound a little crass and it may cause some of us to giggle and walking through this with teenagers was a little, little bit challenging, but the belt is designed for, it's not just meant to, to look ornate. You've got armor protecting and shields protecting all of your body parts. That belt was meant to protect the most private parts of a soldier. Because even with all the weaponry, they were very vulnerable unless they were completely protected. And the belt of truth is going to protect those innermost parts that can so easily make us open to attack if we're wounded. Which is why Paul, I think, picks the word truth. Because when I'm talking with students, I say this is the first thing you have to put on because if you're going to battle with all the other weaponry, but you are not willing to be truthful and honest, You stand no chance against the enemy because the enemy is the father of lies. And so the first thing that needs to be defended is our ability to be honest. The belt of truth. If you got it, say got it. Well, then he goes on. Now, we did an 11-week series on this uh, with our students, and they're all going, yes, we did. Why are we doing it again? If you want to go and follow each of these in depth, you can go onto our YouTube channel, the NBYG, and walk through uh, each of these in more depth, because we spent sometimes two weeks on just each piece of armor. So we're going to go quickly as we head into the breastplate of righteousness. My daughter, Lila, is a senior, and just this year, she decided to show mercy upon me and say, I'd like to watch all the Marvel movies with you, Dad, because growing up in a house with four women, I've seen maybe 14 trillion Hallmark movies, (laughs) but nothing ever blows up in those, and there's nothing really cool in those, and I always know how they're going to turn out within the first five minutes, and my family gets really irritated when I say, I know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen, too, but let's just let it watch it happen. So Lila said, I want to start watching all the Marvel movies. And she's been very intrigued by Tony Stark, who is Iron Man, because he's not really a superhero in the sense that he's got superpowers, but he's just got a lot of money and he's got a lot of toys. 
And so Iron Man looks like this. He's got this incredible suit of armor. And if you went, as one guy did who had way too much time, and added up the cost of this armor, this suit of armor is $110 million. But Tony Stark's entire net worth of all the things that he owns is just somewhere right over $1.6 billion. Imagine how many disciple-making movements we could fund if we had a campaign and raised that much money one day. So this is, uh, this is the Iron Man suit of armor. Well, I can't afford that, but if I wanted to look like Iron Man, I can get on Amazon and I can get this, turns out, for $14.95. And I could walk out and everybody would say, hey, you look like Iron Man. They wouldn't say that for a lot of reasons. But I could walk around and I could wear that. Now, you need to know, church, that if you wear this and you're going to take on the enemy, you're not an Avenger, you're just average. That becomes your logo. And yet so many of us, you're laughing at the t-shirt, just like you laughed at me without my baseball bat. But now I bring us back to that and say, isn't it crazy when somebody shows up to a moment of decision and yet they do not have anything they need with which to be successful? I know I'm not the only one that's ever happened to. Thank you. (laughs) And so the breastplate of righteousness is going to cover your heart. This is the the Lorica Segmentata. It looks a lot like armor you might see in a superhero. It allows you to move around. I got to wear an imitation one of these just last weekend, and it was heavy, but it was pretty awesome to put that on, and you can see how it's going to protect uh, your heart. Part of a Roman soldier, we see this in a lot of art. We know what they look like because we've also found some. Not we, I wasn't a part of the archaeological expedition, but we've got some in museums to be able to piece these together and say this is in fact what they wore. The Proverbs writer would have a long section in Proverbs 4 as he's writing to someone younger that he often calls my son or my child. And so he talks about the path of the righteous, but he ends it with verse 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So If we're um, talking about protecting a chest protector, most of us, if you went out on the streets and said, what does a chest protector look like? We would think about a catcher or maybe an umpire or maybe a a, a military guy or a cop wearing a bulletproof vest. If you Google chest protector, you're going to find all kinds for all kinds of activities, motorbike racing and all kinds of things. But it's going to protect your heart. Now, we know that this is not what the heart looks like. This is the Valentine's Day heart, right? But why does it look like this? Well, most have posited that it looks like this because it's a picture of two hearts put together into one heart. And so when uh, you you imagine a relationship, you imagine two hearts. And now, if you really want to be fun, just print this picture off and just give that to your Valentine. uh, (laughs) Would you be mine? I'm so glad our hearts are joined together. Um, This is a picture, though, that says that relationships are significant, not just between a husband and wife. I would venture to guess that whatever, if you were willing to say, this is my greatest source of pain, and you were willing to be vulnerable to all of us today, it would probably be because some relationship in your life is being attacked. A relationship with, again, somebody you're married to or somebody that's in your home, somebody you're raising or trying to raise, somebody you've raised, or somebody that maybe lives next door to you. Protect your heart. So back up from Ephesians 6. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, Paul says, I tell you this, I insist not in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity 
and they are full of greed. Again, sounds like it's ripped straight from the headlines. So then he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. How many of us have a teen in our lives that we want to share these words to? But you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now see, church, there's Ephesians 4 and then 6, and if you look at 5, he's going to talk about the relationship between husband and wife. It seems like a weird place when you're talking about armoring up and then getting dressed, and then right in the middle you talk about, about marriage and about home. Unless you were trying to make the case to everybody that that is the number one way that we act out the gospel story and the love that Christ has for the church, those of us who are in a marriage relationship, you don't have to be in a marriage relationship to know this because you see someone in your world that is married. One day you may be married or you just have people you look up to who are and you see they are acting out the story of God. And if you wanted to ruin the story of God for an unbelieving world, I think you would start by attacking marriages. That would be a, 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 a brilliant strategy to try to um, to, to darken the hearts of an unbelieving world. And that's why Paul says, hey, you need to put on the armor of God because you are in a real battle, and that battle is going to begin with the person that you are in the closest relationship to. And so, this idea of righteousness. The way I try to illustrate this with students, I don't have time to go into it fully, but I'll illustrate it quickly like this. If I were to ask you how much water would I be able to put in this cup to give me an, an amount, if I were to pour water, how much would be in this cup? You might give a number until you realize that no water is going to go in this cup because why, church? It's upside down. In fact, if a student, I were to start to pour, they would say quickly, stop, 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 whoa. I'd say, wait, why? You've got to turn this cup right side up before you pour. Otherwise, no water is going to, even a, a, a high school student understands that. Brooks understands that. Tucker Stevens from first service would understand no water is going in this cup because it is unrighteous. It has now been righted. I have righted it. See, righteousness, here's, here's a mistake that we often, uh, as teens especially, teens are often led to believe that the gospel is about me giving my righteousness to God and righteousness is how good can I be and I've got to do all the right things and if I mess up, I'm unrighteous. No, the gospel is not me giving my righteousness to God, but him giving his righteousness to me. Righteousness is not about doing all the right things. It is about being rightly positioned so that you can receive everything that God wants to pour into your life. Church, does that make sense? If you are rightly positioned, then it's not about what you do. It's about what he's going to pour into you. But if you are unrighteous, then you're never going to be filled. So when a student comes in and says, my life is terrible, I would just take the cup in and go, you just tell me, where's the cup? They go, what do you mean? Are you righteous? Oh, no, I'm not righteous. You won't believe what I've done. So you misunderstood the question. This isn't about what you've done. This is, are you positioned in a way that you can receive God's righteousness because it's been given to you? So Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Just a beautiful description of pure intimacy and pure life. But once they sinned, and church by sin, I mean the moment that they decided that they were going to be in control, which means they had to give up trusting that God had their best interest at heart. If you got that, say got it. The minute that they sinned, you know what, you know what happened? They could no longer approach another human being without being controlled by what the other person saw in them. And at that time, church, there was only one other human being other than themselves. And they still had to cover themselves up. 
because they had to be concerned with what everybody else thought. Because as we've told students, the single biggest consequence of sin, it may not be the biggest, but I think the single biggest consequence is that you forever have to be in control of what other people see when they look at you. I've got to cover this up. I've got to present this. You get on social media, which has, I'm sure, lots of great benefits and lots of cool things that we can experience. But one of the things we see is that the world is trying so hard to present a view of everything's fine. I'm doing great because of my own brokenness. I have to make sure and control the image that everybody else sees. And so the breastplate of righteousness is going to protect our heart. But then we're going to put on shoes. Our feet are going to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, these are often called the shoes of peace. I'm fine with that, but they're really the shoes of readiness that come from the gospel of peace, and I think there's a big distinction. Now, other than the people here who would know the answer to this question, does anybody raise your hand if you know who Peter Moore is? My guess is there's a handful of people, Sean, because he came to first service, hilarious, Sean, that was great, nice comedy. Peter Moore probably affected the life of everybody in this room. He's a Nike shoe designer. My guess is you've owned something that he designed. They called him in because Converse became the, the official shoe of the NBA. And, uh, and they said, we want to try to get into the NBA market. And the only way to do that was to find a, a basketball player from North Carolina who nobody had really heard of and had a, a, a shoe deal with Adidas that didn't quite work out. And so Peter Moore said, we're going to design some very special shoes. And if you are my age or of my generation, you remember the Spike Lee commercials where they asked the question, it's the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. Why is Michael Jordan so good? It's got to be his shoes. Now, we all knew that it wasn't the shoes, but what a great campaign. So I went out and got me some Nikes. They look more like this, mainly because not Michael Jordan wore them, but because Marty McFly wore them, and I was more into that than I was basketball at the time, but that's beside the point. See, these are the shoes that I had when I went to school. Like, y'all, I was super cool, I'm telling you, uh, because I wore these when I went to see Spider-Man at JCPenney, and my mom was too cheap to buy the real picture, so she just got the sample there that they put there with a the number on it. was great. Um, and so there, there we are, and I thought those shoes were awesome. My point is, when you see shoes you know where somebody's headed. If I were to get Brooks back up here, I don't have time to do it, but I would say, where's this person going? They're going to the baseball diamond. This person's going to the soccer field. This person's going to the football field. You're going to the wrestling mat. This person's going to the track. You can tell by the shoes a person has on which way they are headed. This is more my league, y'all. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> this, is, uh, this person's going to the bowling alley. This person's going to the dance studio. This person's going to the circus. This person's going to the moon. Where is this person going? They're going to 2015. They're going to the future or the past, whichever suits you. So we can tell by a person's shoes which direction they're heading in. No different than the shoes of readiness. A soldier would wear these shoes. They're aired out so that you can, they can breathe. But they also are going to be secured enough to stay on your feet because you're going to be doing a lot of running. Again, we found these. We know what they look like. This is what the Roman soldier shoes look like. They had metal um, uh, uh, nails inside or cleats that they would put in there so that not just they could get traction, but when they walked as a, as a group, as a legion down the, 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 the pavement, you can imagine how intimidating it would sound. I mean, these are really pretty impressive looking shoes. I mean, I was just realizing, you know, for those of us that are my age, dads, this is what we all wore through the 90s, right? We all look like Roman soldiers and we didn't even know it. These shoes are so awesome. But I do need to take just a moment and think about this word. Because he says, I want you to be able to take your stand when the day of evil comes and after everything to stand. 
Now, church, I don't have time to do it, but I could point out at least 15 people that I've just made eye contact with during the sermon of people that have been through something that I can't even imagine, and yet they're still standing. There's people on every pew who have a story, and you're like, how do they go through that? And we even use the phrase, how can you stand it? And when those of us can't stand it, we say things like, I don't think I can stand this any longer because your feet are fitted with the readiness and they put on shoes that said when I put these on I declare to the whole world where I was going and where I was going was I was going towards peace more on that in a second because here's the key truth readiness means that you can stay upright no matter what the enemy throws at you and man we could spend all day pointing to some of you and saying what an amazing example you've been of doing just that because in Colossians, Paul says, again, Paul loves these dressing, he loves talking about getting dressed. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I just want to talk about this word for a second. Give me just a moment to say that when a student comes into my office, which happens frequently, and they say, my life is out of control, this is what they really want. They want peace. They may want forgiveness, they may want answers, they may want solutions, but they really want peace because something's filed. When I talk to some of my friends, people my age, people older, we want peace. And so when a student says, hey, Skid, my life is out of control, I'll start talking about gratitude. I'll say, let's look at, give me some things you're thankful for. That's the reason I'm here. I'm not thankful. I have nothing to be thankful for because of all the stuff that's going out of control in my life. Then I say, then, then if you have no peace, it's probably a gratitude problem. Or what about this? Are you teaching and admonishing somebody else? Who is it you're teaching? I got nothing to teach. Are you, are you worshiping with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Are you worshiping on your own? Are you worshiping at church? Are you listening to worship music? Are you reading or writing? They're like, I don't have time for that. I said, that may be why you don't have peace. And then go back to this. With gratitudes in your heart, we're going to sing with gratitude. There's thankfulness again. And then whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I would say, tell me some things that you're doing in the name of God. They're like, that's the whole reason I'm here. I can't do anything for God because I have no peace. And then give thanks to God the Father. Three times he mentions gratitude. If you have a peace problem, I would suggest you probably have a gratitude problem. The times in my life when my anxiety has been out of control, it is because I've not been focusing on the things for which I have to be thankful. It's not a peace problem, it's a gratitude problem. And so I have the shoes of readiness that come from a gospel of peace. Then, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. I don't know if it's by coincidence, but this is the one that, that Paul spends the most syllables on. This one he, he values. If you were to go on the square and say, just tell me, when you say shield, what do you picture? My guess is they might picture a, a medieval knight shield, but they would probably in our culture picture the shield belonging to Captain America or maybe the shield belonging to, to Wonder Woman. Or maybe it's a shield like this, like the kind that we see in, in Narnia. Or if you're my age, it would be this shield, the one belonging to He-Man. Or again, this is about my speed right here. This was the shield that captured my attention when I was a kid. We know that shields are meant to protect us from something, the shield of faith. This is the Trajan Column in Rome. I've never been there personally, but I've had many who have been there and sent me pictures like this one, which is like a, an ancient PowerPoint, really, because all up this column, if you get up close, you just see picture after picture depiction of, of, of victories and battles, and you see pictures of these shields that look like this. This is the scutum, or the shield of a Roman soldier, which looks very unlike shields that we might picture, very tall, almost the size of a small door, and they're not just made of metal, they're made of wood, 
a layer of leather that is moistened or dampened or wet, and then they would have some sort of a metal protection over the front of it. So a three or four layered shield that looks like this. And to my knowledge, only one that we have in existence is in a museum, I think in London. We only have one, but we know what they look like, again, from, from pictures. And what you'll notice is that the Greeks fought hand-to-hand, man-on-man, one person, to one guy, combat. The Romans would fight together as a group so that when the first row got tired, they could fall back, and then the next row could come to the front, and then they could fall back. And when you saw this particular formation, known as the Testudo Formation or the Tortoise Formation, you knew something was about to go down. They weren't hunkering down because they were scared. This is a formation that meant we're coming to take ground that you have that we want. And we're not letting you have it anymore. They'd put the shields on. They could protect themselves from the top and from the front and from the sides. And they'd begin to march. And you can imagine like a tank moving towards you. This wasn't to defend. This is when you got close to the gates of the enemy. Because this meant they were about to attack. Now why are they protecting the top and the sides? Because when you got close to the castle, guess what they shot at you? arrows. Guess why you needed leather that was wet inside of the, sh- uh, the shield so that when the arrows stuck in it would extinguish it because what kind of arrows were they? They were flaming arrows. And so we know that these arrows are always aimed at discouraging you and making you turn and go the opposite direction. Church, I'll tell you what I'll tell students. Um, it is not always about your destruction. I mean, Satan wants to destroy us. He came to kill, steal, kill, and destroy But with a group of people sitting in church, he's like, I don't know that I'm going to start with destruction because you all are here to learn how not to be destroyed. But he would start with distraction. And if he can start with distraction, he can slowly, slowly, even over a course of years, work you towards destruction. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then... Uh, Here's a truth I want you to to, to make a note of. We should expect and not be surprised by fiery arrows when we storm the strongholds of the enemy. Another key truth is that fire either perfects or it consumes. The right amount of fire on a grill will make a steak incredible. But the wrong amount of fire or leaving it too long on the fire is going to make either a steak where you can't eat it or it's going to burn it up to a crisp. It's not the fire. But the fire will either perfect or consume. We have the choice of the fire that you thought of a minute ago when I said, what's causing the greatest source of pain? That fire is either going to perfect you or it's going to consume you. James says, very hard to live by. We should consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. We've seen that. Okay, so then we come to the helmet of salvation. Got to go really quickly. Most people would think of a helmet that looked like this when you hear the word helmet, or a motorcycle helmet, or a bicycle helmet. This is actually a real helmet, by the way. It's not bananas. It's a real helmet made to look like bananas. That was a funny helmet that I found. Or this one that looks like Lego hair for a Lego man. We got some Lego people I know. Or then you got the opposite end of the spectrum. You got this one, um, which is a, a nice helmet. I'm probably slowly working my way towards this helmet eventually. This is the helmet that I would have worn as a kid. And to be honest, I got to think about winter times that I've ever worn a helmet. I never played football. I wore one helmet, y'all, that I can think of for any significant time, for any significant purpose. And it was for the whole year when I was in the sixth grade that I was the nationwide poster boy for the Space and Rocket Center at Huntsville, Huntsville, Alabama. And this was my picture. My mom hates this picture because if you look closely, my fingernails are totally dirty. Because I didn't shower the whole time at space camp, I don't think. And anyway, um, my mom is mortified by this picture because it went to every school uh, in, in the country. It's the only helmet that I ever wore. 
This is my grandfather, James Skidmore. He played on the 1925 and 1926 national championship teams at the University of Alabama a long, long time ago. And here's a picture of him that's in my office of the helmet that he wore when he played in one of the very first Rose Bowl games. That's his helmet. This is a picture of what it looked like, and this is a picture not of him, but from that game. And you can imagine what it's like to play a game in that helmet. But he said, we didn't get head injuries because nobody led with the head. When you're wearing that, <laughs> you're going to be extra careful because you want to protect your mind. Here's the evolution of the football helmet over time because we have perfected the engineering of protecting what's up here because if your heart is intact, but this isn't, then that's a big problem. So the Romans would put on these helmets. This is an American military helmet with insignia that would let you know what rank this person did and, and who they were. So when you're in battle, if you see somebody with a helmet on, it implies you know that they are about to be hit by something and they want to protect themselves from it. They're not just wearing a helmet to walk around. And so the, the plumes on the Roman helmets, I just found out doing research, would often indicate the, the, the rank they had or the role they had. And so in battle, you would know who to look for to get instructions by the helmet that they wore. Paul says that we need to don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test God's will, the renewing of our mind. Paul then says in writing to the church in Corinth that our weapons are not like the weapons that the world uses. He says, this armor, I'm not talking about the armor that the Roman soldiers wear. No, our uh, armor has the, the, the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I tell teens, teens, you might want to take this verse and stick it on your computer or by your Spotify or Netflix playlist. Whatever's going into your mind when your parents aren't watching or you're on a computer alone, you need to know that you need to take every captive and make it obedient to Christ because we are set to demolish strongholds. Quick word about what that word means. Here's a definition that maybe we'd like to know. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes one to accept as unchangeable something known to be contrary to the will of God. A lot of words, a scientific definition to just say that a stronghold is something that eventually makes you say, I don't think I can stand this any longer. And that's why you need to put on the helmet of salvation to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Paul would say to the Philippian church, all these things that are noble and pure and right, think about those things with the helmet of salvation. This word salvation is the word sozo. There's a counseling center here in our community with this name and teens say, well, what does that word mean? It means salvation, but not just I was baptized so I got saved. It is an ongoing process of salvation. The helmet of salvation is not your baptism certificate. It's not just like I got a Bible because I was saved. It implies that you're being healed. You're being delivered. You're being made whole. It is a process of salvation. Think about it like this. You're saved from the penalty of sin by the cross. But you are being saved from the power of sin as you wear the helmet of salvation so that one day you'll be saved from the presence of sin, which is what we all want. I know we're moving so amazingly quickly through all of this, but I want to get us fully dressed here so we wrap up with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive and defensive weapon, the only one that is strictly, I mean, that is also offensive instead of defensive in the whole armor of God. He says it's the Word of God. When you think of sword and you ask people in the community, they're going to picture Excalibur. Or maybe they think of movies with famous sword fighters or gladiators. You'll think about pirates or Lord of the Rings where it seems like everybody's got a sword. 
Narnia where they have incredible swords. They got swords in space. In Disney, not only do they have these, I went and looked up swords in Disney movies and there were like five screens of pictures because we are fascinated with swords. Don't tell me you don't know about taking up your sword. And so a, a Roman soldier would have a gladius or a pugio, pugio a dagger, a, a, a gladius would be a longer sword. These are what they would have looked like. We don't need replicas because we've actually got uh, historic remnants of these. And the Hebrews writer tells us that the Word of God is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, which is clear why Paul picks this metaphor to describe the Word of God. Jesus would say that the words I've given to you, they are spirit and they are life. Real quickly, I want to show you this graphic. showed it to our students a couple weeks ago. It's hard to make sense of here, but these lines represent every chapter of the Bible. The length of the line represents the length of the chapter. So you'll see Psalm 119 right there in the very middle. If you got it, say got it. That's the whole Bible. Then there was a guy named Chris Harrison, a scholar, who said, I want to take every time the Bible references itself. When Jesus talks about something from the Old Testament or the Old Testament prophesies something in the New Testament. And I want to just show people graphically how this is one big cohesive story. It's not just a bunch of verses. And so they, they began to connect every time the Bible references itself with a colored line. And the color of the line represented how far apart the references were in the Bible. And this is the image they came up with. It's an amazing picture of over 63,000 times that the Bible references itself as one big cohesive story. That's why with our students this year in the NBYG, we're giving them one chapter a week of what we call the 52 most important chapters that every teen should know. Because we don't expect them to be able to read the whole Bible in a year, but just check this out, y'all. 12 minutes a day, you can read through the entire Bible in a year. That's three songs on your iPod. It's not that difficult. But we've given them one chapter a week. So that they can go and uh, you can go on our website and find those chapters so that when they graduate, every teen has got uh, uh, the 52 chapters that we think are arming them to be ready. Because we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we have to end where we began. We've read through Ephesians 6 through verse 17, but now verse 18. We can't tell the story without telling this particular verse. And you'll see very quickly that our ultimate weapon is that weapon of prayer. So many times. Let me walk you through this. It's real quick. He says, pray in the Spirit. That's going to be the where. And then he says, on all occasions, that's going to be the when. And with all kinds of prayer and requests, that's the what. Then you're going to always be alert. That's going to be the how. And you're going to pray for all the Lord's people. There's your who. And I'm going to pray that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I'll fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's the why. Very simple, all laid out. Paul says, this is our weapon. We believe this in North Boulevard so much that on November the 6th, Church-wide, with all of our small groups, we're going to have Power Up Sunday. Power Up Sunday is for your small group or for the day you can join a small group at a location all over town. Maybe it's at a church. Maybe it's at a school. Maybe it's at a hospital. Maybe it's going to be at one of our government buildings or somewhere where we're going to pray as a church around our entire community because we're not going to be content to just sit here and talk about prayer, but we're going to go and practice it. So September 25th, you should go and sign up. Your small group leaders will give you more information. If you're not in a small group, go to the website. You can sign up and join somebody. And we're going to get a chance to go and do that because even a fifth grader knows that when you put on the armor of God, you had better be heading out into battle. Because if you won't, who will? Isaiah tells us. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. 
So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Clearly talking about Jesus who said, I'm going to wrap myself in this armor just as I'm going to put on flesh and I'm going to dwell among you. So when my daughter and I are watching these movies, we go to Tony Stark's basement and we see his armor. And there it sits waiting for Tony Stark to open it up, get inside. And when he gets inside, can you imagine if for the next hour and a half he walks around his mansion? Nobody's going to watch that movie. I'll just tell you right now, nobody would watch that movie. If he puts the armor on, you expect that he's going to go to where the battle is and he's going to fight an enemy or he's going to defend somebody that he loves. So church, if you need a power statement for this message, it's very simple. No one watches a movie where someone puts on armor and then refuses to join the battle. They just won't. And yet so many of us in seasons of our life have done just that. We put the armor on and we refuse to fight. Because we're wearing a t-shirt and not the armor of God. So today I challenge you to put on the belt of truth. To lock in the breastplate of righteousness. To have your shoes fit with the readiness of the gospel that comes from the gospel of peace. To take up the shield of faith. To put on the helmet of salvation. And to take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Then you have the full panoply of God. For without it you do not stand a chance. So church, let's suit up, let's get dressed, and soldiers of Christ, arise.